The brain is what records what we call correlates of experience. So right now, as you and I are having this conversation, we are actually regulating, being regulated by each other. We are regulating each other. We are monitoring each other. My neurochemicals are affecting your neurochemicals. The activity in my brain is affecting your brain. And there are, say, millions of people watching us on the internet. Our brains are entangled right now in what we can call a collective brainscape, a collective brainscape. And that collective brainscape is a biological system. It's not just on the internet, because if I said something rude right now, many people, their cortisol levels would go up, their adrenaline would go up, their blood pressure would go up, their body would go inflamed. If we were having a loving conversation, which made us feel good, then you know people would be getting dopamine hit all over the world. They would get serotonin hits, they would get oxytocin hits, on and on. Welcome back to Collective Insights. Today, we welcomed one of my heroes and one of the most exciting guests we've ever had on Collective Insights, Dr. Deepak Chopra. He is the founder of the Chopra Foundation, a nonprofit entity dedicated to the research on well-being and humanitarianism. He's also published over 90 books that have been national bestsellers and translated into dozens of languages around the world. He has had one of the biggest impacts on our understanding of consciousness and spirituality and how that intersects with medicine and health and well-being. Today we talked about consciousness, self-regulation, virtual reality technologies that we can use, we can harness those technologies to support our health and well-being. We also talked about measuring the age of your cells, chronological age versus biological age, and the real meaning of success. I can't wait for you to listen. It was one of the best conversations I've had, and I can't wait to share it with you. Collective Insights and the work we do at Neurohacker Collective is made possible from the support of our community and the sales of our mental performance product, Qualia Mind. Learn more about Qualia Mind at neurohacker.com and use coupon code Collective Insights for an additional 15% off. Welcome to Collective Insights. I'm your host today, Dr. Heather Sanderson, and I am so pleased and privileged to have Dr. Deepak Chopra joining us today. Dr. Chopra, welcome. Thank you for having me, Heather. So I want to dive right into the meat of it. How do we unleash the explosive power of our brain? The first thing to understand is that the brain, like any other biological system, is a verb, it's not a noun. And the brain responds to every experience, doesn't matter what that experience is. Fundamental experiences are sensations. So this is a sensation, this is a sensation, okay? So fundamentally experience are sensations, perceptions. So that would include sound, uh, color, shape, taste, smell, and uh, then the interpretation of that. This is a pen, this is a hand, this is a book. This is how we metabolize experience. And that's all life is. Life is the continuum of experiences. Even a fertilized egg is having an experience in the womb 
uh, as it becomes a zygote and an embryo and then a baby, infant, toddler. That whole biological organism is, if I were to use one word for it, it's a sensory um, technology. Biological organisms are sensory outlets experiencing a narrow bandwidth of experience in the form of sensations, perceptions, which are modified sensations. So sound, touch, sight, taste, smell are modified sensations because all the windows to our brain through the five senses are actually subtle forms of touch. With eyes, we see photons. With ears, we touch uh, vibrations of the atmosphere. Taste and smell, we also are touching at a very basic level, molecules, etc. So what is life? It's the metabolism of experience. And where does this occur? Not in the brain. It occurs in consciousness, which has no form, uh, which is boundless, uh, which uh, is therefore infinite, and uh, anything that has no boundaries is infinite. It doesn't mean humongous big. It just means infinite possibilities. It doesn't mean infinitely small. Even that has a boundary. Consciousness has no boundaries, so it's formless infinite. Its modified expressions are experiences, sensations, perceptions, images. Uh, you, you imagine a rainbow. Imagine... Uh, the Milky Way galaxy, imagine the Himalayas, imagine the face of your beloved. Okay, so sensations, perceptions, images, feelings, emotions, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, but also the opposite, guilt, shame, anger, hostility, distrust, depression, uh, all of that. So all emotions all feelings, all images, all thoughts, and all sensory experiences and all sensations are entangled. They all, if you think of one, let's say I think of my mother, I see her face, I hear her voice. I can even smell her skin, although she's long gone. You know, as a child, I remember sitting on a lap and listening to stories. So here is all experience happening. What's, where is it happening? Not in my brain. Because this brain, which is remembering my me sitting on the lap of my mother, is different from the brain that had that experience. If the brain had the experience, what I'm saying is brain never has an experience. Nothing has an experience. All experience is in consciousness, including the experience of that three-pound thing that we call the brain, the three-pound jello that we call the brain. So how do we maximize the capacity of of uh, our brains, number one, by understanding that fundamental reality is who we are. When we say I am, before I say Deepak Chopra, I am, before you say I am Heather uh, Anderson, <laughs> before you say that, we both say I am. That I am is infinite possibilities, is infinite. Now, I'm, I am Heather is the metabolism of a selected bandwidth of experience since Heather was a fertilized egg to where she is now and to where she's going all the way to dusty death. So what is Heather as a body-mind system and a brain? The metabolism of experience. So be mindful of experience 
as it is happening and all experience is happening when now so what is the meaning of life the meaning of life is what you give the present moment meaning and how you respond to it if you just keep that in mind that there is only the present moment and it's not a moment in time because you know the moment in time is gone what happened to my words by the time you heard them they're gone they don't exist so anything we experience is in time but the presence in which that happens is not in time if we are present to what is right now and respond creatively to it in an evolutionary manner then we automatically have insight to truth goodness beauty harmony insight intuition imagination creativity and transcendence that's all we have to do be alive to presence now and choose the response to what is happening now creatively and not like a biological robot otherwise you're an algorithm if i understand correctly then the perception kind of switch is that the brain is a tool that we can use to optimize our perceptions our experiences and then that consciousness the brain is what records what we call correlates of experience so right now as you and i are having this conversation we are actually regulating being regulated by each other we are regulating each other we are monitoring each other my neurochemicals are affecting your neurochemicals the activity in my brain is affecting your brain and there are say millions of people watching us on the internet our brains are entangled right now in what we can call a collective brainscape a collective brainscape and that collective brainscape is a biological system it's not just on the internet because if i said something rude right now many people their cortisol levels would go up their adrenaline would go up their blood pressure would go up their body would go inflamed if we were having a loving conversation which made us feel good then you know people would be getting dopamine hit all over the world they would get serotonin hits they would get oxytocin hits on and on opiate hits so whatever this broad brain bandwidth is in which we are engaging right now through cyberspace but even that cyberspace is a space of shared consciousness and there is nothing else there's only consciousness and that is being metabolized as this experience which is a body mind experience doesn't matter if it's on the internet or wherever you can't escape wherever there's mind there's body wherever there's body there's brain wherever there's brain there are unified wholeness of experience in consciousness and then it's not the mind because the mind is um, programming of that consciousness your programming is different than mine cultural education parents economic ancestors epigenetics history all the way back to the big bang uh, we've had slightly different experiences so that's why you look different than i look but we're still the same consciousness and we have a potential we have this opportunity to influence that 
right? We yes. can make decisions. So you could say something rude, but I could, I could laugh it off and we could turn it into a joke. And that would shift everyone's experience. And, or, you know, I could have the opposite experience and start crying and that would start shift everyone's experience. So we have some control over the way we respond. And that's happening in our brains, in our minds, and in that consciousness. What, what are the things that we can do to influence that? Many things. One is, I said, um, the practice of what these days is called mindfulness. A better word is metacognition. Metacognition. Be aware of the activities and experiences in the present moment as they are happening, and then choose your responses in a creative way in the direction of truth, goodness, beauty, harmony, love, compassion, joy, equanimity, laughter. Um, that is the most important thing. But then, of course, you know, good sleep, um, um, stress management, whether it's dancing or listening to music or watching comedy or um, reading poetry or um, reading nursery rhymes as my mother did to me as a baby. All of that is very important in stimulating the sensory perceptions that modulate brain activity. So that's important. Stress management, it doesn't have to be only meditation, storytelling, entertainment, dance, music, poetry, massage, um, sex, sleep, all these are important as stress management. So that's second. Third is movement and exercise. The fourth, which we're learning a lot about now, is uh, vagal stimulation. So every time you sing, you breathe deeply, you chant, you stimulate the vagus nerve, which has bidirectional traffic from the brain to the body and from the gut back to the brain. In fact, 90% of serotonin in your body is coming from your gut. So that kind of vagal stimulation is very important, getting a lot of attention right now. Nutrition. So any diet that is rich and diverse in plant-based foods that affect the microbiome, which is 99% of the genetic information in your body, is not in the brain, it's in the gut. So your gut is also a brain. In fact, your gut and your brain and your skin come from the same layer, neuroectoderm. So anytime you stimulate the skin through sensation, the gut through food, the brain through five senses, and thinking and feeling and imagining, you're, you're refining the instrument. So your brain is an instrument. It's not who you are. Um, it's the, the instrument you, you use. But the instrument you use, of course, is a reflection on who you are. If this computer was messed up, it would be a reflection on you and me right now in this conversation. So to sharpen that tool, that instrument, you've given us some foundational things. What is the science saying about maybe some of these really optimizing, like really accentuating the, again, like the sharpness of that tool, the brain and its connection to the mind, the the neurochemistry, maybe like herbs. I know there are a lot of Ayurvedic herbs like ashwagandha and turmeric, uh, gotukola. There are a host of, of interventions we can make at a physical level that can help us, again, sharpen that tool that is the brain. 
Yeah, so all these uh, things that you mentioned, go to Kola, Brahmi, which is also called Brahmi, Ashwagandha, Shatavri, there are many. They are now being seen as what we call adaptogens. They help modulate at a cellular level, including the brain, but not just the brain. You know, the brain is just one organ in the body. And yeah, we give it a privileged position, but they're all equally important. Your heartbeat is as important as your brainwave activity. And so is your nervous system, but so is your immune system, so is your endocrine system. The uh, nutritional um, supplements or complements that you mentioned are adaptogens. They modulate the effects of stress at a cellular level, both in neurons, but also in other parts of our biology. And so they induce what is called self-regulation or homeostasis, which is uh, the dynamic state of non-change in the midst of change. That's what optimizing should mean, ideally speaking. Dynamic non-change in the midst of change or homeostasis or self-regulation, which is returning you to your baseline state of being in being is the highest intelligence without when there are no fluctuations of consciousness in the form of sensations images feelings thoughts then um, that is the highest self-regulation it happens in deep sleep as well and people who meditate uh, like the studies around meditators who have been doing this monks who have been doing it for 40 years 50 years that there's this base level of equanimity is that sort of what you're describing that self-regulation not being strung along by the emotions of the day but being able to maintain that stability is that kind of what you're describing that these herbs and, and some of these interventions yeah. the emotional and psychological level yes equanimity is a good word but on the biological level, it's perfect, dynamic, non-change in the midst of change. So let me explain that. So, you know, when you say my blood sugar is normally between 80 to 100, that's it's a range that we call normal. My cholesterol is this. My blood pressure is this. So that range of change is actually a dynamic non-change because it doesn't go above this or below this temperature body temperature baseline metabolism so equanimity on the psychological level peace absence of agitation translates into the same activity on the biological level because body-mind are a unit. They're not separate in the same way as mass energy are a unit or space-time are a unit or wave particle are a unit or mind and brain are a unit. They're a single entity of a deeper reality, which we're calling consciousness. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners might be able to relate to how a drop in blood sugar might make someone irritable, right? They they interact so fluidly that not sure. only does our brain affect maybe our blood pressure, but our our intake, our nutritional intake affects our our brain and our consciousness, our experience of the world. Yeah, everything affects everything. Say that one more time. Everything affects everything. Exactly. Uh, so in your work, you're a medical doctor and you've gone down a, a deep spiritual path and made that 
uh, working on, on, I think, the for the benefit of humanity, not just at the physical level from the perspective of a medical doctor, but from a very spiritual level. Uh, Tell me about the weaving of of those two things as you, especially as you approach what we might call medical diseases, things like dementia, anxiety, depression, things that affect our mind, our brains, but show up as diagnoses. They are they're in. There's an ICD-10 code for them. How do you marry those perspectives? when you maybe see a patient or start to discuss treating those diseases with with a group of doctors, say? So once again, you know, when you use words like spirituality, it's a pretty loaded word, but just the same way as you use words like God or the divine. And most scientists, the way they're trained, they can't relate to those words. So I think the best word to use for spirituality would be self-awareness. And so that would be a convenient word, self-awareness, which includes, of course, awareness of the environment. The self experiences the environment. Would include the experience of professional interactions, would include the experience of personal relationships, would include the experience of the body, the mind, the emotions, imagination, and ultimately the experience of the self. So that's self-awareness, if you want to call it spirituality. That's a great word, too, because the self is not a physical entity. Okay, It has qualities, characteristics, but the self by itself is not a physical entity, just like consciousness is not a physical entity. Every experience, as I said, has a biological correlate. So what is now being revealed in current science is that less than 5% of disease-related gene mutations are fully penetrant. That has to be phrased very carefully. Less than 5% of genetic mutations are fully penetrant, which means if you have a mutation of uh, a certain kind, a mutation is a genetic mistake or an error, like a typo in a, in a word. Let's say if your gene is a word, then there's a spelling mistake. There's a typo there. That's a mutation. Less than 5% of those guaranteed disease. So if somebody has a Baraka gene, like Angelina Jolie, the actress, she had that gene, Baraka gene, and that predicts cancer, 100% breast cancer. So she had a double mastectomy as a precaution, correctly so, because that gene would have guaranteed that she would get that disease. Now, for that, there are new technologies that are emerging, uh, including CRISPR and gene editing, where you'd be able to cut and paste the gene the same way you do your emails. However, that doesn't affect more than 5% of chronic illness, including cancer, heart disease, diabetes, type 2, autoimmune disease, etc., etc. 95% of chronic illness, all chronic illness, from Alzheimer's to cancer to autoimmune illness to whatever, is actually associated with low-grade inflammation, low-grade anxiety, and low-grade depression. Now, most people don't even know what the cause is. You know, you say, why do you feel anxious? Oh, they just feel anxious. They can't identify. Why are you depressed? Don't know. 
there's a little bit of inflammation in the background, and this might precede the chronic illness by by decade or two decades or three decades. So, uh, bottom line is, 95% of illness can be influenced and probably prevented. Um, so, the future of well-being, given all the things that we call experience and how they modulate our biology, because bio biology is the metabolism of experience, theoretically, 95% of disease is preventable and reversible even. And, uh, I, you know, it's, uh, the treatment in the future will be much more personalized, preventable, process-oriented, participatory, and uh, very measurable, very measurable in terms of biometrics. So right now we measure things like uh, common measurements, things like cholesterol, blood sugar, heart rate variability, uh, bone thickness, skin uh, resistance, number of wrinkles as a measure of aging and disease and all of that, immune function. These are good measures of how your biology is doing. But there are more precise measures that we can do now, including gene expression, microRNA, uh, transcription analysis. Um, we can look at inflammatory markers. So these are much more precise, and that's what we do. As an organization, one of our foundation activities is to create algorithms that correlate everything from facial expression to eye movements, tone of voice, mood, what we call wealthies instead of selfies. You take a wealthy of yourself, then you can correlate it with blood pressure, bone density, everything. And so, you know, in the future, you all we'll be able to do is take a little... 10-second video, it'll tell you the state of your health and everything, and there'll be algorithms. Now, we combine that with artificial intelligence, with VR, with immersive dreamscape experiences. Um, there's a whole different way to look at the future of well-being, which will go beyond pharmaceutical interventions. Five years from now, you might go to a physician smart physician, not every physician, and instead of writing you a prescription for a drug, they may give you a nutraceutical or they may say, go and get this VR session. We know that an exposure to VR in a burn setting gets rid of burns. Autistic children, when they look at their normal expressions through VR, their neural networks change. So the future of well-being will be less chemical intervention and more information intervention. And some of that intervention will be electroceuticals, electrical information going through your, into your body through VR and deep learning systems and immersive dreamscapes. The more you look into this, you realize that the whole world is a dreamscape, even your body and mind, you're a fictional character. The only reality is consciousness. <laughs> So these technological tools sound like a way to sharpen that tool, that brain. Um, and do people have access to this right now? Are you aware of like a product someone could get to to use um, these VR systems right now? We are experimenting. We have a lab, an innovation lab. We're building a big lab in uh, in Florida, Lake Nona, with all the high tech companies. So we bring what we call 
collaboration of information technologies and VR and artificial intelligence all together with the express purpose of well-being, not only personal well-being, but planetary well-being, more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. And we believe that the future will be through technology. Yes. And one of the things you mentioned was prevention and also that a lot of these diseases are something that we might be able to measure that something is not in balance, maybe decades in advance of the diagnosis. So there's potential here to optimize function through people, you know, through the 20s, 30s, 40s, before there's a diagnosis in their 50s, 60s, 70s. And so as we start collecting this information and getting people the feedback, because I guess that's what's lacking right now, right? Is someone goes into their doctor, they get their cholesterol run, they say they're fatigued, they're a little depressed, but they get their cholesterol, CBC, CMP run, and the doctor says, oh no, you're fine. There's nothing wrong with you. And they go home and, and then that inflammation continues to build. They stay in the same patterns that don't support health and and optimization again. So what can we do now to advocate for ourselves to get that extra information that can give us that feedback so we can make the necessary changes to optimize now and prevent future diagnoses? So in my work, I uh, focus on what I call seven pillars of well-being. The first is sleep. The second is stress management. The third is exercise and mind-body coordination through various techniques, yoga, breathing, vagal stimulation, tai chi, qigong, all of that. Uh, because That's a separate, whole separate discipline than just simple exercise. Uh, so that would be three. The fourth is emotions and relationships because every emotion triggers a biological response. The fifth is nutrition and nutritional supplements, complements, nutraceuticals. The sixth is uh, 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 balancing your biological rhythms. We have four biological rhythms, circadian rhythms as the earth spins on its axis, as the earth goes around the sun, seasonal rhythms, we have lunar rhythms, gravitational rhythms, and, and ideally speaking, a body is totally in balance when the biological rhythms and the biological organism are in total harmony with universal rhythms. And, you know, we have techniques for that called grounding. So that's the sixth pillar of well-being. And the seventh in our, um, in our um, system is self-realization or uh, understanding fundamental reality beyond perceptual reality. So those are the seven pillars that we use. We optimize well-being through that. And we also uh, know that, you know, biological age doesn't have to correspond to chronological age. So I'm getting to, I was 74. Uh, my biological age, and I'm not kidding, is in the late 30s. That's fantastic. So I'm hearing kind of two paths. What you just described, those seven pillars, these, when I hear you list them, 
I think of millennia of human experience that has recognized that these seven things are profoundly important for the health and well-being of humans and humanity. And yet, mm-hmm. on the other side, you're discussing how the future of technology, technology, and what's what's kind of on the precipice is going to be so influential and and really helpful for preventing and reversing disease. Do you think that when we start to use those technologies, is there any risk of unintended consequences? Every technology, every intervention has risk. And uh, that's what life is. If you don't adapt to risk or you don't minimize it, then you become uh, extinct. That's how evolution works. So technology is part of the evolution of the human species. If you say, well, we can't, let's do away with technology, you can't. I mean, we can't have this conversation without technology. So the evolution of technology is irreversible, period. Now, can we use it for diabolical purposes? Of course, you know, we just saw. You you can hack democracies through cyber attacks. You can make nuclear bombs. You can create climate change. Even the pandemic is a result of uh, a distressed ecosystem of genetic information in the microbiome. So, yes, technology ultimately will lead to human extinction, is my belief, unless we are wise. But it's also unstoppable. So let's use technology to maximize well-being. And the technology I'm talking about is actually augmenting what is already happening in your body. Your body is a biosensor. And all these technologies augment biosensing. So they're augmenting and refining what you already know. Now, if you were a yogi who were able to silence their mind completely, I'm able to do that, then you can regulate your biology without the technology. You can lower your blood pressure, you can secrete the right hormones, you can um, decrease inflammation all through consciousness. But then you have to take training for that. In the meanwhile, uh, technology can help you do what would take 40 years for you to learn to do, how to control your autonomic nervous system, for example. So it's like a it's like a shortcut to the natural processes. Yeah. And this yeah. is also an interference with the natural processes. Well, this is some some of what we've seen in in modern medicine, right? A lot of the autoimmune medications, they just suppress immune function. And so it's if we can interpret an autoimmune process as a, a symptom of the body telling us that the body is out of balance instead of suppressing and instead of suppressing that that response we can work maybe with the natural system i don't know if i'm saying that very articulately but what i'm hearing you say we just have to be very careful how we use words because then you know you say oh instead of taking a pharmaceutical i can do this then you know that's not true 100 percent of the times if you have a pneumonia you need an antibiotic right Uh, you're not going to start taking nutraceuticals right off the bat when you have a temperature of 102, your body's shivering, and you're about to die. You might even need a respirator, right? We're seeing that right now. So we can't make blanket statements. The one thing we can say, I try to avoid words like 
balance because nobody knows what that means, you know. So the the optimal word would be again self-regulation, homeostasis, and uh, that is a fine tuning. A, a, you know, suppressing the immune system or stimulating the immune system is both wrong. If you have an overactive immune system, you're going to get autoimmune illness and inflammation. That's what an overactive immune system is, okay? Or you're going to get allergies. If you have an underactive immune system, you're going to get infections and maybe prone to cancer. So you need you don't need an aggressive immune system. You don't need an under-responsive immune system. You need a fine-tuned immune system. It's like, you know, when you listen to music on the radio, at least the old-fashioned radio, you had to fine-tune till you got the tune. In the meanwhile, there was a lot of background noise. So you minimize the noise in a biological system, and the noise is what we call entropy. And it creates everything from disease to dis-ease to stress to disease to ultimately death and aging. What we are trying to do is minimize entropy at the most fundamental level. And all these things, adaptogens, nutraceuticals, they all have a role to play. But we should never have the idea that this is one solution to everything because there isn't. Okay, because your body is a system. It's not a thing. So using the technology to work with the system versus supersede the system. Correct. That's helpful. So I've heard you say uh, that the current trajectory of humanity, if if it were to collapse, that it would just be the end of the human experiment. And you sound almost okay with that. And yet you are totally committed to supporting humanity. How do you hold both? Well, it's a, it's a matter of preference. Do you like tragedies or do you like comedies? You know, what kind of movies do you want to go to see? So I believe that we are all fictional characters in a collective dreamscape, along with Wittgenstein, who said our life is a dream, we are asleep. But once in a while, we wake up enough to know that we're dreaming. And I believe that literally. If I asked you what happened to your childhood, it's a dream. If I asked you what happened to your teenagers, it's a dream. But if I asked you what happened to yesterday, it's a dream. What happened to when you woke up this morning, it's a dream. What happened to a second ago? Where where did the moment that was there right now, where did it go? It's gone. So when we say this is a dream and this is a dreamscape, that includes, the dreamscape includes the human body, mind, biological activity. It's part of the dreamscape. Fundamental reality is not in time. It's eternal and infinite. So if tomorrow the universe rapidly burnt itself into the heat death of absolute zero and disappeared altogether, fundamental reality as the singularity of creation would still be there because it's not physical. So you and I are not physical beings. We are having a physical experience. Uh, you know, religious people say we are uh, divine beings having a human experience, spiritual beings having a human experience. You might say you're a non-local being having a local experience. It doesn't matter. So as long as I'm, I'm in this movie that I call The World, I might as well upgrade it. So that's my job right now, I see. Um, 
creating a critical mass of consciousness for a more peaceful, just, sustainable, healthier, and joyful world. But, you know, any of the things that we see right now from climate change to the pandemic to some crazy guy causing a nuclear plant to leak through this iPhone, that would be the end of the story. So, you know, we, we are sleepwalking ourselves um, to extinction. It's just like humanity is so asleep that it doesn't realize that it's on a collective suicide mission. Now, in the bigger picture, failed experiment, no big deal. But in the small picture, while you're in the movie, I think while you're getting the heebie-jeebies, as they call them, you might as well switch the channel and see a comedy. So it makes me curious. Do you have like that crazy uncle, or maybe in your case, it's like the asshole nephew that you have to be with in family gatherings where you ha- where it, it takes some work to maintain this perception or this this your perspective? Or are you just in it all day, every day. So when you interface with people who don't share that perspective, what is your, what is your experience of that? Do you, does it take work? Not anymore. It used to take work because I would press the pause button before I reacted and observe my reaction to react. So instead of reacting, I would pause, observe my reaction to react, and that was enough to cut the circuit. But now it's natural. I I watch the show, and sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's very sad, but it's still a show. And do you feel compelled to intervene to sort of convince people that your reality is the reality and that theirs is not? Or is that not even the way to Uh, say it? Yeah. What's the phrase? A man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So, no, it's, I used to. I don't. I, I, I like to share. And uh, there are enough people who enjoy the sharing. So that's good enough. And I'm sure there are enough people who are in that place, maybe where, where you were, right? Where they have that space between an input and then their reaction. And they're just trying to widen that space, right? Have yeah. them- that's it. And those are the people that you're speaking to. That's it. Typically. And that's where the work gets done. What do you do just for fun? For me, existence is fun. I don't take it for granted. I don't take existence or awareness of existence for granted. So for me, life is a perpetual surprise. And as long as it's a perpetual surprise, it's fun. And in that, having that experience that that life and this experience is fun, how does that affect your biochemistry? How does that affect the physical? What are what's the neurochemistry? What's happening there? Well, when you're happy or when you're having fun and when you're experiencing joy or peace or love or compassion or equanimity, the biochemistry as we know it at the present moment is serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, opiates. There's another peptide, it's called anandamide, that people are talking about these days. And when you're not having fun, then the biochemistry is cortisol and adrenaline. That's a simple way of saying it at the moment. So we can change this perspective, directly affect our biochemistry, and really upgrade our experience and our consciousness. Yeah, every experience is an opportunity. Relatively simply, too. It's just a choice. Yeah, it's the choice of what you choose in the present moment. 
And this is impacting longevity. You just described you are you were born 74 years ago, was that right? But your cells are 34 years old? 37, 38. And so you mentioned the the seven in terms of physical and mental capacity, okay? That's how I measure how the body is doing. What are the tools you use to measure that? Four measurements. Joyful, energetic body, loving, compassionate heart, clear, reflective mind, and lightness of being. As long as I have those four, my biochemistry will take care of itself. I was sure you were going to say it was about counting wrinkles. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So for someone else to gauge their cellular age, could they go through that process? Can you kind of take us through that? I think right now the best biological markers are blood pressure, cholesterol HDL ratios, um, sugar tolerance, immune function, inflammatory markers, and um, and uh, maybe telomerase levels and telomere length. Has this been standardized into one way of measuring biological age? Answer is not yet, but it's being done. And you are the way you feel. You are the age that you you feel, right? And the way you act. I could compete with any 35-year-old today in terms of yoga or physical endurance or strength or, you know, capacity, mental or physical. Maybe, you know, I'm competitive, but I also recognize that's an ego thing. Well, and how compelling because you're living it, right? These are... what you espouse, you actually live every day I do. and you can measure it and it works. It's reversed your biological age. Yes, I believe so. That's impressive. I've heard you refer to God as female. Can you tell me how you got there when most of the world refers to God as male? Well, first of all, I come from a tradition where God is both male and female. And that's my spiritual tradition. So there was never a question of God as a he or a she or an it. God being everything is divine male, divine female, divine it, divine transgender, divine whatever. It's all divine. Now, having said that, the history of human civilization has been dominated by the male impulse for good reasons. You know, we started as hunter-gatherers. And so, you know, you had a male that was going out every day to hunt and bring back food, frequently not returning and disposable. So what did the male have to do? Male had to be a predator, had to be a conqueror, had to take initiative, had to be violent. You have to kill to get food. Okay. And interestingly enough, ironically speaking, there are 200 million sperm for every egg that is fertilized. You know, you see that what is more valuable in nature is the nurturing element that gives us life. And the male kind of fertilizes and activates that. Okay, so for historical reasons, up until the agricultural age, which is only 12,000 years, ecosystems of life were dominated by male predatory energy for survival. Fight, flight, freeze, reactive. It served its purpose. 
But now what is it done? It's the basis of everything that um, we call exploitation and conquest and predation and uh, injustice and social injustice and racial injustice and gender inequality, etc. What is the feminine energy associated with? It's associated with beauty, intuition, nurturing, affection, tenderness. But actually, if you look at the mythological aspects of the divine feminine, it doesn't matter east or west. Let's take the west. So Hera represents power. She's the Golda Meir, the Indra Gandhi, and the Margaret Thatcher of our times, Hera. Demeter is mother. She's the Mother Teresa's of our time. Okay, Aphrodite is sexuality and beauty and love. Uh, she could be the Marilyn Monroe's of our time, Aphrodite. Uh, Artemis is Diana, the one who looks at nature, the nature conservationist, you know, that uh, Jane Goodall is an uh, Artemis or Diana of our times. Uh, what else? Persephone is the alchemist, the healer, uh, and there are many uh, healers today that are representing the divine feminine. Hestia, the homemaker, with somebody like, a, like um, I am forgetting the name right now, but you know, all these archetypes have equivalents in human affairs. And if you look at the divine feminine, I personally believe that's the future of human evolution. The divine masculine has served its purpose, and we're seeing the death of that right now in Washington, D.C., partly. How, in, in ourselves, for self-discovery, self-awareness, how do you suggest or how have you personally found uh, an integration in those archetypes, a healthy integration of those, of those different... I actually, in my personal life, I embraced one divine archetypal deity in my imagination and have her um, embody my biology every day. So, and so you go through them. You you don't choose one, the same one every day, but you go through them. No, I sequentially go through them every day of the week. Oh, how fascinating! And so, then you can tell me more about that. What does that look like? Well, so let's say today. What is today? Today is um, is Friday. Okay, today is a very interesting archetype for me. But let's say. Today was, um, which I'm not willing to reveal, so I'm not sharing. But yesterday would have been the goddess of wisdom, Athena, and she resides here. And in the throat. In the throat, in this, this chakra. Her equivalent in India or in Indian mythology is Saraswati. She's the custodian of music, the arts, the sciences, culture. And in the West, she's... Athena. So all day long, she lives here uh, on Thursday. And then from here, she radiates her energy everywhere in my body and outside my body to the world. And every day I switch. What an incredible tool. Um, have you taught others to embody this? I teach people uh, courses on archetypal uh, empowerment, yes, through the divine feminine. Is, but there are other people, you know, Gene Houston and all these people are amazing people, teachers. One of the impressive parts about speaking with you is your certainty 
that you you seem to know uh, you're you're expressing your truth with a capital T. Um, how do your like downloads occur? Do you do you see it? Do you feel it? Does something higher speak through you, or is it your the highest version of you that is speaking? Can you describe a little bit of that experience? The normal internal dialogue that we have, you close your eyes, you hear a voice. Anytime you close your eyes, you have thoughts, you hear a voice. That is your personal history. It's your karmic history. And that is projecting itself as your body right now. Your body is your internal dialogue, your karma. If you want to call it karma, you don't have to. It's kind of loaded word. Any past experience and how we interpret it and metabolize, live through the experience is now projecting itself as this body. When you take your attention away from your internal dialogue to an archetype, which is an image, but it symbolically represents a story, then you embody that story. Okay, and it becomes part of your story. But ultimately, you even transcend the archetypal stories. And that experience is called pure knowing. You know without being able to verbalize it. So it's also an aspect of intuition. Intuition being a form of intelligence that is contextual, relational, holistic, doesn't have a win-lose orientation, kind of eavesdropping on the internal dialogue of a greater, bigger, higher mind. So as soon as you get yourself out of the way and you ask a question, you get the download. Now, the download could be a sensation. It could be a perception. It could be an image. It could be a thought. It could be an epiphany. It could be an insight. It could be a creative impulse. It could be a vision or it could be a synchronicity. So it happens to me. That's how I write my books, 93 books. And I get the feeling that I'm collecting the royalties and not doing the work. Uh, my clinical experience is that patients who are tapped into that inner knowing have less depression, less anxiety. That certainty brings them some of that that equanimity that translates into what you were describing as, as sort of the, the physical, um, you called it dynamic. Tell me again. The dynamic non-change. Non-change. Yeah. And so those patients tend to do better. They tend to heal faster. Have you, is that consistent with your experience? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because they're more returning to a baseline homeostasis. That's true. All the while, though, you know, when you say certainty, I'm, I'm certain in what I express based on my experience, all the while knowing that in the ultimate reality, it's a magical lie. Just like the earth is flat is a magical lie. Just like the ground I'm standing on is stationary is a magical lie. Just like this is solid is a magical lie. It's all magical lies, but it makes life work. <laughs> and when um, when we talk about finding and accessing that that pure knowing, because it does help with our health, there's there are health benefits. Meditation is one of the ways to access that. Other people talk, especially these days, about psychedelics as a tool to access that. What are your thoughts or opinions about using tools, any of them? And, and there's probably more that I'm not aware of, but I'd love you to comment on, on using that to get there. I'm very engaged in the research on psychedelics and ketamine and 
things like that. So I believe that psychedelics can open the window to reality as long as you're not dependent on them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's under proper supervision and all that. But psychedelics have a role in treating depression, in getting over the fear of death, and also opening the window to awareness. Yeah. And shifting, shifting brain and mind function at a, at a physical level for, I guess, part of me is wondering how to, for patients or, or listeners who really aren't comfortable yet, maybe talking, taking their awareness to that consciousness level, um, but who, who are really f- focused on the physical, is there a way to start the conversation at the physical level? Okay, here are the actionable things, maybe from still this note. You know, as people grow older, they should realize it's possible to grow old without having a chronic illness, unless you have a, one of those penetrant uh, uh, genes for which also technologies are coming. So if old age can be without infirmity or chronic illness, and if you can choose the moment of departure, which in my tradition is called the big meditation, Mahasamadhi, and consciously exit, that would be a, a actually a very graceful exit. And we've we've had um, Aubrey de Grey on the on the phone here and on the podcast, and he suggested that maybe there's a choice in that. Even do you have thoughts about extending longevity past you know the 125 years or so that the eldest people have lived? I think the limits of how far we can extend it. Um, are still questionable. So 120 is uh, is uh, right now the limit. So that's questionable. Should we live forever? I think uh, it would be a very silly idea because there would be no variety and we would ultimately be doomed to eternal senility. Uh, death makes life possible through resurrection. For every off, there's an on. For every on, there's an off. If you had a permanent on, there would be no experience. In fact, every experience is dependent on on and off. If I put my hand on somebody's thigh and I don't move it, after a while, they won't know it's there. Just like you're not aware of the fact that your skin is touching your clothes. But if I move it again, then you might say, what the heck are you trying to do? Okay, so... Every experience is an on and off of sensation, and that's what life is. Without an on, there's no off. Without an off, there's no on. If there's a permanent on, you're doomed. So I, uh, that's where I depart from Aubrey. <laughs> You've partnered with Oprah Winfrey and Alice Walton, two of our, arguably the, some of the more powerful women in the country, if not the world. Uh, how can our listeners and I help you manifest the highest potential of your partnerships? What does ultimate success in your world look like? The only measure of success is joy. And if you don't have joy, which is called Ananda Shakti, she's the divine feminine, the ultimate source of all divine feminine, then you're not successful. doesn't matter. So there's only one measure of success. I want you to say that one again. The only measure of success is joy. If you don't have joy in your heart right this moment, then you're not successful. doesn't matter how much money you have or how much power you have. And how, I guess that makes me wonder, how, how do we help more people experience joy? When you see the suffering in the world, how do you hold that 
I, I think you've kind of already answered this, but I just want to go back to it because hearing you say that that joy is the measure of success is that personal joy, or is that is that joy for the most people who are p- currently existing? As long as you're thinking only about yourself, you'll never be joyful. Okay, so next time you're concerned or worried, ask yourself who you're thinking about. <laughs> me, me, me. So um, the only way to joy is love in action. Love without action is um, irrelevant. Action without love is um, meaningless. But love combined with action, and we call it karma yoga, is the only way to experience joy. How beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. How can our listeners find out more about what you have to offer, where your books are sold, uh, how they can maybe be involved in what you are, are doing in your work? So two things that uh, I would appreciate any help on. One is uh, go to deepakchopra.com and you have all what I do there. And I also have an app. It's called the Chopra app. Uh, In three weeks, I'm coming out with a digital version of myself. It's called Digital Deepak. And you can have a personal relationship with uh, uh, Digital Deepak where it can get to know you, your health needs, and actually guide you for a lifetime. Uh, You can check out Digital Deepak um, by just checking out the website. And DeepakChopra.com and then the app, which is called Chopra. But now I have a, another project, which is probably more important than all of that. And that is through a nonprofit, which is ChopraFoundation.org. And that project is called Love in Action, as we mentioned. And um, it has uh, a, a chatbot. Her name is Peewee. And uh, she can engage with anyone uh, in a few seconds uh, and assess their mood. And if they are depressed, she can counsel them. And if she thinks they are seriously depressed, she can actually find them a counselor. And at this moment, we are creating a um, uh, cryptocurrency or love in action tokens to pay for professional services. But PV has already intervened in 400 possible suicide uh, attempts. People are more comfortable talking to her than to a human being, which tells you the state of our humanity, because they don't feel judged by a machine, uh, even though she has the sweet name of PV. I would say, please check out um, Never Alone, www.neveralone.com. Love. Once again, www.neveralone.love. Um, she's engaged with suicide prevention. And uh, our, when I heard that every 40 seconds a human being is killing themselves, that te- you know, amongst teenagers, suicide is the second most common cause of death, that more people died last year in Japan from suicide than from COVID. I think this is something we need to do right now. Otherwise, our humanity is incomplete. So please check out www.neveralone.love. Thank you so much. This episode of Collective Insights was hosted by Dr. Heather Sanderson and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. 
The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease, or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement, and with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.